Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Good morning. Everybody doing okay this morning? Hallelujah. It's Palm Sunday. I'm going to be in John chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and open your scripture there. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you for your presence in this house this morning through the Holy Spirit. We just agree with the word that goes forth that we are, we are desperate for the kingdom to come. Use us, God, to advance your kingdom. Lord, we so appreciate this season. I think the cross is on all of our minds as we work towards Easter. We wouldn't have life or breath without the resurrection. So this morning, as we look at your triumphal entry, God, we ask that you would be with us, that you would bless this word, that you would guard my lips, God, and that your word would go forth in power. We love you more than life itself, Jesus. You're wonderful. In your name we pray. Somebody say amen Amen. and bless the Lord. John Calvin, in sometime around the year 1530, uh, he was... John Calvin's mother was a devout Catholic, and she wanted him to go to school to be a priest. Um, He was obviously a sharp kid, um, but his dad had some kind of falling away with the church, and so his dad wanted him to be a lawyer. And he found himself at uh, the University of Orleans, and he uh, ended up studying the Renaissance. It was kind of the revival of of the Renaissance, and he wanted to be a Renaissance scholar. And so um, it's said that that one night he left the, the library where he was studying, Um, And he was headed home, and his home was just a couple blocks away. Um, And it was dark. He said that he would study late into the night, and so, you know, sometime late. Um, And on his way home, he was grabbed by the collar by an old big man. Have you ever seen pictures of John Calvin? He's a real skinny guy. Um, And it says that uh, an old old kind of burly man grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and and kind of picked him up and said uh, said something like, Have you received the free gift? and they they were known as 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 gospelers they were he was a part of luther's party influence but calvin wanted nothing to do with these gospelers and he wanted nothing to do with luther's reformation he was a good old catholic boy and so he kind of shook out of this guy's hand um and he he made it home but he was he was startled he was again he's obviously not an athletic man he's very much a you know a scholar um and so he said that just to Something like a week later, just a couple of days later, he left the university sometime around noon. It was it was um, afternoon and he was headed home and there was this big commotion in the street, like right out in front of his house. And so he um, he you know how you kind of do when there's a crowd. He slipped in to kind of see what was going on. And what he saw was this same old man, the same big burly man. And but now the man's tied to a stake um, and they're getting ready to burn him to. Um, burn him at the stake because of his faith, because he's preaching this new message of a free gift of salvation and that you could come to Jesus without necessarily coming to the Catholic Church. Um, and so they put the man on the stake and Calvin was so impacted by the man's um, his grace. Like he he wasn't particularly shaken. There, there's this thing that we all have. It's a it's a basic instinct. It's called don't die. OK, do whatever you can do to not die. 
Um, but Calvin said the man was just kind of almost stoic. And as they put him on the stake and they lit the flame, he started to sing uh, Luther's hymn, um, Mighty Fortress is Our God, or Our God is Mighty Fortress. Starts to sing that line. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it shook Calvin to watch this man who, you know, had just grabbed him up a couple weeks before, begin to burn at the stake, singing a mighty fortress is our God. And that's a strange thing. It's a strange thing for someone to abandon the most basic instinct. Don't die. Do whatever you have to do to not die. Lie, steal, whatever, you, whatever it takes. Just don't, don't let that flame get you. But to watch a man as a flame consumes him and his song is a mighty fortress is our God. Kind of a paradox, right? Because he's proclaiming that God is his shelter, that God is his protector to some extent. And he's still believing, proclaiming this message why the flames begin to snuff him out, essentially. He walks through this mystery and this suffering, still professing God as a shelter. Um, I don't think, this is just Caleb's commentary, I don't think you grab people on the street and shake them and ask them, Are you, have you received the free gift without being a person that prays for a revival? I don't think, I, like I imagine this man got up in the morning, like prayed, God, let your kingdom come. Shake this city with, with power and with the gospel message. I don't think this man was looking to die. I think he was looking for revival. But even in the, 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 the suffering and the kind of mystery of God, I don't know why you're allowing my life to be snuffed out so quickly. Maybe he had a family, right? Like maybe he had grandkids. We don't know. But even in that mystery, there's still something in his praise. Even in the kind of confusion and, um, and big giant question mark of why, what's happening here, he still lifts up his voice. His basic instincts submit to his trust in Jesus. And little did he know that the man who would continue this forge towards the Reformation that he was believing for was standing there watching him. So even in, even in his life being cut short, he's still um, seeing the kingdom come. He's still leaving legacy and destiny. But the man didn't know that in the moment. He just knew that that flame was hot. And in some ways, Palm Sunday is this beautiful picture this fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the king would come on a donkey's colt and the crowds are praising and worshiping. It's this beautiful fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah would come and he has come. And in some ways, Palm Sunday is, is, is a warning for us. Like, how does the crowd praise this man as the very representation of Yahweh on the earth, calling him, saying that he's come in the name of Yahweh and he's the king of Israel. How do the crowds praise this man on Sunday and shift so quickly, so fickle they've turned on him on Friday? It's a strange thing. And so in some ways it's beautiful, in some ways it's a warning uh, to us that it's very easy for us to see but not perceive, to hear and not understand. And the crowd is this mixed bag of people um, who are welcoming, exalting, praising Jesus. And it's clear that many of them have no idea what's going on. And it's very clear by the fact that just a few days, their shouts of Hosanna will shift to shouts of crucify him. 
So I want to read the account from John's gospel. And then I want to just quickly kind of talk about what that looks like. What, what, the way I want to go about this is I want to analyze different postures from the crowd, their responses to Jesus with the hope that we can be people like this man that Calvin encountered, who even through the mystery or not quite underst- completely understanding what's going on, we still let our praise rise. Even when it seems that we're living in darkness, we're still proclaiming there's glorious light in this Jesus. Does this make sense where I'm going? Okay, so let's read the account from John um, chapter 12, uh, verse 12 through 19. So John 12, 12 through 19. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Again, that's Zechariah's prophecy from chapter 9. These things his disciples did not, did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him, and that he had done these things to him, that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called uh, Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees, they said to one another, you see that uh, you are doing no, uh, you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. So what we have is this like mixed bag of people who are kind of sucked up into this crowd who began to respond to Jesus's introduction into Jerusalem on Passover week. They use palm branches, which um, palm branches are, are used in, in feast um, in the old covenant for the nation of Israel, but they're not used in particular with um, the Passover week. Um, but they were um, used when Simon of Maccabee, uh, you know, the Maccabean revolt, when he won the victory um, in the years before Jesus's birth, they were they waved palm branches as a sign of national victory. And they're quoting Psalm 118. Um, this is the day that the Lord has made. It starts in verse 24. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. This is the only time in the scripture we get this word, save us. And it's kind of interesting the way that we brought it into the, the way it came from the Hebrew to the Greek, and then it came to the English. We just saved the literal Greek word, and it comes through as Hosanna. But it it literally means save us. And so when you read Psalm 118, and it says, save us, it's that same word that they're quoting in John chapter 12, um, Hosanna. And it came to have this this implication that wasn't necessarily um, a cry for help, because in the psalm, um, it it immediately says, oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the psalm is save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so even in the Hosanna became this almost not not necessarily save us, but he will save us or he's on his way to save us or we believe he's coming uh, for our salvation. And so Hosanna became this proclamation of praise, but it still held this um, this idea of salvation coming. So they're quoting Psalm 118. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The psalm goes on, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. 
His light to shine upon us. What a beautiful picture of the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus that will fill the earth. So they're interacting with multiple messianic prophecies, interacting with Zechariah chapter 9, interacting with Psalm 118. They're declaring him king of Israel. Do you remember um, in Luke's account, um, the Pharisees say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Stop them. Don't. Don't allow them to proclaim you as king. Do you hear what they're saying? Stop. And do you remember Jesus says, um, if, if they don't cry out, the rocks will. And Jesus is saying, this is a profound moment that you don't understand. And if they stop, if their mouths stop, the very, very creation, the most basic element of creation will begin to sing. It's that tense of a moment. And so I want to just, again, I'm just going to hash through um, different elements of the crowd, different pictures that we get, different people that are around. And I, I want to work towards what I'm aiming at is that we would come to a place of real deep rooted knowledge of God, praise and worship. The praise that this man had that, that Calvin saw that says that even when we don't necessarily understand what God's doing, we trust who God is. Does that make sense? Because so many times what happens is we expect God to act in a certain way and we have an agenda and we believe God to to be after our agenda. But if God doesn't fulfill our agenda, our praise begins to weaken. Okay, does you get what I'm saying? But what we want is even in the moments of mystery, why, God, are you allowing us to experience suffering? We want those moments to actually cause us to push into the character of God. And for us to begin to extol him for who he is. And so the scriptures say things like God is not a man that he should lie. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I don't agree with Calvin on many points, obviously. But one thing that Calvin was emphatic about was that that God has a plan and a purpose from creation past. And so I, I don't understand how all of that shakes out. But I know that even in my darkest moments, God, it, all it takes is God to speak one word and he can rip me out. And I also know that in Romans chapter eight, when it says that um, God works all things together for the good of those those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I know that right before that, Paul said that um, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to us. And then he says at the ending of Romans chapter 8, we are being slaughtered all day long for God's glory. And so Paul says, uh, there's suffering. There is a present suffering that I endure, but it's not even worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed to me. Then in between, he says, God's working all things together for my good. So does that mean that, that Paul will never suffer? No, it means that when he suffers, there is a great reward being prepared, stored up for him in heaven. So in the suffering, he continues to press, knowing that God's still in control, that God's still working things out for his kingdom, and that there is a coming day when he will set all things right, and that Paul has a great reward stored up because God's working things out for his glory. And so it would be easy for this man on that day in Calvin's encounter to allow the flame to, you know, start to to burn up his clothing and he starts to get hot and him to say, nope, this isn't what I signed up for. But he doesn't do that. 
He continues to press. And what this man doesn't realize is that he just evangelized the man that would forefront the entire Protestant Reformation to some extent. He just evangelized one of the greatest Christian writers that would ever face the earth. And so in this moment of continuing in his suffering, he is testifying of the beauty and worth and the majesty of God that even in my pain, you're still good. And through that testimony, there was a young man, 25, 26 years old, who caught something. Even in that flame, he was working things together for the good. And and so we want to be those kind of people who are believing God for revival, for healing. We're believing God to just bust open the heavens. But when we hit strange hardships and when we don't quite understand what God's doing, we want to lean into his character that we know that he's good. Even if I don't understand, he's wonderful. And we want our praise to be driven by that, by who God is, not necessarily God always doing what I want him to do. I know that's a big thought, but I, I think if we can get our heads around it, it would shift the way that we worship. And so, number one, there's this group in the crowd that's really easy to analyze. And so we'll start there. There's the Pharisees who bring um, no praise. They come empty handed before the king. They're actually... Um, this is kind of a harsh statement, but I think it's true. They're, they're actually, in this moment, I think that they're committing a form of idolatry. Because they're more concerned with um, their political party continuing to have power than, than they are actually analyzing who Jesus is. Okay, so what's, what's very ironic about this moment is the people who are most religious, right? The, the most religious sect of this society, they stand before God incarnate, God in the flesh, and they actually reject the God whom they claim all of their life circles around. Um, it's easy to throw stones at them, but, but, but I think that we're so used to the idea of the incarnation. But, but if anything, we should remember that God coming in the flesh was so profound that they couldn't get their heads around it. Um, and so we should praise God for, for taking on flesh, for walking um, in, 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 in rubbing shoulders with sinful men to save us. That is a revelation that they couldn't get their heads around. And we understand that that's hard. But even still, they're stuffing their fingers in their ears and they're covering their eyes, refusing to see that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead just weeks before. And remember that it was four days after Lazarus' death. And that was a clear statement because they believed after the fourth day, the soul had completely left the body. I don't believe that, but there was this kind of religious belief around that. And so after the the fourth day, like even after they believe there's no way that Lazarus could ever come back from the dead, Jesus says, come out of the grave, Lazarus. And at the voice of Jesus, the man gets up and then Jesus says, go ahead and unwrap the, the garments because the man is alive. Okay, so they're aware that Jesus has authority even over death. They should at least stop and consider who's before him. But they're they're more concerned with their political position, their political ideology, their political standing. They want to keep the peace because as long as the peace is kept, they can maintain their position. And so they miss the man that's before him. Jesus says in John chapter 5, this is kind of a thematic thing that runs through John's gospel, and I love it. But he says in 544 to the Pharisees, he says, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from God. And so he's in this interaction with them about who he is. And he says to the Pharisees, how can you believe when all you seek is glory from one another? 
You live totally for the praise of man. And if you were to follow me, essentially, this is what he's saying. If you were to follow me, you would lose some of your standing. And you would never do that because you're more concerned with the glory that comes from people and not the glory that comes from God. Remember, he says to the disciples, if any man follow me, he's got to pick up his cross and pick it up daily. And some are not willing to pick up their crosses. For us, uh, most of us don't live here, right? Like we're, we're, I don't think, especially, I don't think we're wrestling with the pharisaical spirit. Um, but we should know that in the same way, when we began to open our mouths about the gospel and we began to talk back to our culture about who Jesus is, when we stop, oh, I'm just, just let me talk for a second. When we stop letting Oprah and Dr. Phil and whoever else tell us who Jesus is, and we start telling them what this says, what the historical account of who Jesus is, and, and who, who, who the Holy Spirit has revealed him to be, we should expect some form of rejection. And if we're not willing to step into rejection, then we'll never be willing to bring praise in moments of conflict. This is a heightened political. This is this moment is a big deal. This is a this is a political thing. They're proclaiming Jesus to be king, um, but but they're not willing to step into the rejection. And so for us, God, what God has not promised us to be to win the popularity contest of, of Facebook. OK, he's not promised us to be all happy. Go lucky. Um, we Jesus says that when you're when you're rejected, remember that the prophets were rejected before you. And you rejoice. You be glad every time you're rejected because your reward in heaven is great. It's that same theme, right? He doesn't promise that you'll always be accepted. He says that at times you will be rejected. But when you're rejected, there's glory and reward in heaven. It's the same thing. Pushing through rejection for eternal reward. This life is but a breath. I'm aimed at glory, glory, eternal glory. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And so for us, we've got to just kind of step into the uncomfortable um, place that is willing to look culture in the eye and say, no, like we believe that the scripture is infallible from cover to cover. The maps and all sucker. We believe it, that God is good. And what this says about the what this says about Jesus um, is true. If we're not willing to embrace rejection, we're not really worthy to bring praise. Number two, there's a separate um, I think this is this is kind of my sifting through. I think that there's another element of the crowd, um, which I'm calling like an excitement driven praise. Um, Josephus, you know, the, the his first century historian, Josephus says that uh, Passover week brought something like two million seven hundred thousand people um, to Jerusalem. And, and that was not including foreigners or people who were considered defiled. So two million and seven hundred thousand worshipers. OK, so um, I think the last census of Atlanta was like five million. Um, but but you, you get like we're two million seven hundred thousand, not including people who couldn't worship for the week. So maybe up into three million, four million people are in the city. You can expect that there is some form of excitement, right? Like rushing into this this small city, Jerusalem. So on the tail end of Lazarus' resurrection again, remember John said that um, the, the people that were around when Lazarus was raised, they were still there. They were still talking about it. So there was this excitement in the city that Lazarus was dead for four days, man, in the tomb for four days. And all Jesus did was open his mouth. He didn't even wave his hands. He didn't have any kind of enchantment. He didn't have to jump on one foot and rub his nose. He just told him, get out of the grave, Lazarus, and he did it. It was it was wonderful. So can you imagine this kind of like ecstatic excitement that's running through the crowd as Jesus begins to come in um, on a cult? 
There's energy, heightened anticipation. Do any of you guys, have any of you guys watched This Is Us? Is anyone on This Is Us kick? Yeah, we've got a few This Is Us kick. Um, the This Is Us kick is all about emotionalism. It's just trying to make you cry. And I'm not against it, right? Like, we're watching an episode the other week, and Haley is just like, like, I thought her mama died. I don't know what had happened. What, what was, never mind, I'm not going to get up. What was crazy is that, that there, she's all crying about this guy who's dying, who we knew was going to die from, from episode one. Like, what are you crying about? Golly, you thought she saw one of those puppy commercials, save the puppy commercials. But I think I think there is such a thing as excitement driven praise. I think there is such a thing as some people in the crowd who don't really have a revelation of what's going on. They don't don't really know Jesus. They're just kind of swept up in the energy of the moment, just kind of swept up in the excitement. And I, and I think this is what happens a lot of times when people come into a worship service and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're excited and they're expressing, um, but they don't worship on a regular basis. Does this make sense? When you come to the house of God and you enter into the moment, um, you, yeah, there are some who have never they haven't worshiped since last Easter, but they're throwing up their hands, which is beautiful, right? Like I'm not throwing stones at it. I'm just saying that it's shallow to some extent. Does that make sense? I'm just saying we can't live there. So I'm not against emotionalism in the sense that we all have um, we're all emotional beings, but but um, emotions um, are are not the prerequisite for praise. Does this make sense? So like uh, there are times where you may come in right in the worship and, and Micah was hitting that high note this morning right like it was beautiful, and there may be times where you begin to weep and there's nothing wrong with that. You'll never hear me throwing stones at you, but if you don't weep and you stop singing, that's that's where there's a problem. Does this make sense? When, when you come in and, and say Micah hit the wrong chord this morning, right? He woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and he's got a, he's got, um, a little bit in his throat. It sounds like he's got Kermit the Frog voice, right? And he starts to sing, and you can't get your praise. That, that You might have a problem with just being an excitement-driven worshiper. Does this make sense? But, but worshipers who set the atmosphere step in on Sunday morning and say, whether the band hits the note or not, Jesus is in the house, and he's the same today, yesterday. And forever. It's the same God who set me free. I can't stop just because you're not excited today. Right? You, you get excited, that's fine. I'm going to get excited too, but I can't do my thing whether or not you do your thing. Embrace emotions fully, but, but we never crown them as king. Never crown them as God. And so, you know, you hit those seasons that feel dry and seasons that feel tired. And, and you, we, we just refuse to let my physical body, my soulish, emotional life dictate my worship life. You just refuse. You say, nope, not today. You got to let the devil know not today. That's what we say. Jesus is the same no matter what my mood swings are doing. So there are some, I think, they just kind of got caught up in the moment. And again, there's no throwing stones here. I'm not, uh, I'm not neglecting or, or, or speaking down at anyone who's a new believer and who gets excited in the moment. I'm just saying that, like, let your worship life start to take root in the character of God. Because if you don't, you'll stop when the moment's not exciting. Because look, look, the crowd goes, Hosanna, praise. And then the Pharisees, they get a few people to lie about Jesus. And then the crowd's going, just kill him. Just kill the man. How, and it's like some are just, they're just following the momentum, the flow of what the crowd's doing. But had they really known Jesus, had they really um, experienced his character, they would have realized that these testimony against him are fake. They're weak. They're, they're dishonest. Does it make sense? 
there's a lack of revelation of who he really is. There's another crowd, in my opinion. There are some people who, I'm calling it like a misinformed praise. I don't know if that's the right terminology. But there are some people in the crowd who, um, they know scripture. Because they're quoting scripture, right? They're, they're quoting the Psalms. Um, they, they recognize this moment as fulfilling some prophetic significance. I would say that they recognize this moment as fulfilling the wrong prophetic significance because Jesus didn't come on a war horse, okay? There are prophecies that say that when he comes, he'll come on a war horse and he'll come to set the nations right, right? Like the, the, the wolf lays down with the lamb, that you, you beat your, plow, your, your, your swords into plowshares. He establishes perfect political peace. But, but this isn't the moment. This, this isn't exactly what's going on. Jesus comes fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, riding a donkey's colt, proclaiming himself as kind and meek. It's a, it's a different moment, okay? Do you guys get what I mean by misinformed? They, they, have, they have an idea about what Jesus is coming to do, but their idea is, is wrong. It, it's right in the sense that he will come one day on a war horse and he will set all things right and all of Israel and one day will turn and profess him as Messiah. Zechariah says they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son when they look upon him whom they have pierced. There's a, there's the, that day's coming, but that's not this day. That's not this hour. That's not what he came for. And so they, it's a, I'm calling it a misinformed prayer. It's, it's, uh, they, they're, they're praising because they believe Jesus to be fulfilling their agenda. He's fitting inside their box in this moment. Right? Like, like who they think God should be and who, what God should do. Now he, he's fitting it. Yep, let's lift our voices. He's going to do what we want him to do. And so there's this excitement. They let it fill. They're right in their desire to some extent. They have scriptural support, but they don't understand the full intention of God's plan. They don't understand God's timing. They don't understand that, that some part of the Christian life is, is just following God's mystery. Just, just trusting Him, even through the crazy kind of seasons where He's weaving in and out. And yes, He has prophesied that one day there will be no tears and there will be perfect peace, but He hasn't come to fulfill that prophecy yet. He's come to deal with the fact that they're sinners. And he's come to wash. He's come to fulfill that he'll, he'll change their sin from, from scarlet to snow, from crimson to wool. He's come to fulfill that Isaiah 53, that on his back he'll wear your punishment. He's come to fulfill prophecy, yes, but it's a different prophecy. So I'm saying that it's easy for us to pray when the bills are paid and the sun's shining, when God has blessed us. Again, we believe fully in God's intent to heal the sick. That's a staple. We believe God intends to heal the sick. But there are times where it seems that God doesn't. And we can't quit praising and quit worshiping just because God doesn't do what we believe he should do in this moment and in this, in this timing. It might be that God's timing is not fulfilled yet. There are a million different factors that God could be doing something different. We don't quit trusting him when he doesn't do what we think he should be doing. We keep praising and keep pressing in. This is just really, like, really obnoxious between me. And it's just, just a hard place in my relationship and God's relationship. It's like sometimes I think he should do something and he, he says no. Like, it's just, he doesn't always do what I say he should do. Um, it's just crazy, right? Like, just so bizarre. Um, but, but I think he might, like, intend for us to flip that around. And when, when he doesn't seem to be doing what we think he should be doing, we just keep pressing in in prayer. We keep proclaiming his goodness. 
And if things get hard, you know, like if we get pressed and if God um, allows us to experience some form of persecution, we just keep proclaiming you're good, you're faithful, you're you're just there's a there's a day. The I don't have time to get into all of this, but I, if I had time, boy, I would. Um, when you get into Revelation, specifically chapter one. OK, um, just imagine it with me. I will just imagine Revelation chapter one with me. Where is John? He's on the island called Patmos because he's exiled, okay? He's suffering, okay? Suffering. He says he's caught up in the Lord's day. I love, um, if I had another 30 minutes, I would talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the, the martyr in Nazi Germany. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was in prison, um, he wrote a letter to his family, and he said that he realized that John was caught up into this revelation on the Lord's day, on Sunday. That John was still worshiping, he was still having church, even though nobody was around. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, parents, I'm in prison, but it's the Lord's day and I'm still having praise and I'm still having moments of worship. And God's still meeting with me, even on the Lord's day here in prison, when things don't seem to be going how I think they ought to be going. And so John is on the island called Patmos suffering alone. And then John's saying things like this, and he's saying these things intentionally. It's recorded with purpose. He's saying, Jesus, uh, he's saying God who was and is and who is to come. Why does he say that? Because he's suffering, but Jesus is still coming. Every I'm so turned around sideways right now. I'm going to get back on track. Um, Every piece of apocalyptic literature. okay, apocalyptic literature is literature that's prophetic, that deals with end times. It always comes in moments of suffering and persecution. So the greatest apocalyptic writers that we have of the scripture are John in Revelation. Okay, John, he keeps making statements about Jesus being the same today and yesterday. Jesus is going to wipe every tear from our from our eyes. And John is saying these things in a moment of trial. If you want to go back into the Old Testament apocalyptic literature, you're going to start dealing with Daniel. Who is Daniel? A man in Babylon, a man who stripped from his family, a man who is in trial. And he begins to write about the day when God will restore all things. Shift yourself into Ezekiel. Same context. Trial, persecution, suffering. But his message is there's a coming day. God will set all things right. You hold on to your faith because the dark is dark, but God's light is shining through. And so so John, in his writing in Revelation, he keeps saying things like, I'm a partner with you in this tribulation. And for the record, the great tribulation, it literally means the tribulation the great one, meaning that you will have other tribulations. Remember Jesus saying that in this life, you will have tribulation, trouble, trials. And so John, in his moment of extreme trial, right? Alone. It's Sunday. I'm getting up to worship. Then he's saying he's the same yesterday, today and forever who was and is and who is to come. He will wipe Every tear from our faces, sickness will be eradicated. Every persecutor, every um, every person who has lived a life of evil, all of the pain and all of the people who cause trial and hardship, all of those who hoarded their money while sick and sick kids were starving to death, all of those people with hard and dark hearts, they'll be judged. They'll be set right. God will eradicate darkness from the earth one day. And John's saying that day's not today, but he's still worthy. He's the same God who will do it. And I am your partner in tribulation, the one who worships even through my hardship.
So there are some with misinformed praise. It's the, the problem with the prosperity gospel in our nation today. Um, and, I, and, and I'm not against prospering, right? Like, I'm not against blessing. I think blessing is a scriptural principle, but, but it, it's, it's, it's not right scripturally to say to someone, because you are poor, you are living in sin. Or because you are not prospering financially, God does not love you. None of those things are right. Your faith is weak. We, we don't say that to people, to churches in the Middle East who are having their heads sliced off left and right because of their faith in Jesus. We don't tell them you're poor because of your faith is weak. Okay, that's the problem with the prosperity gospel in our nation. Is it wrong for any of us to prosper financially if God blesses us? Absolutely not. As long as you use that blessing to continue the kingdom. Is it wrong for us to say to people who are struggling, who God has positioned differently than us, you live in sin because you don't have a lot of money? Yes, it is absolutely wrong and it's a disgrace to this gospel that is to be preached to the nation. Is it absolutely disgraceful to the scripture? And so that's the promise of Scripture is that you can have life and life abundantly in Jesus. And that's our message. But that doesn't mean that there'll never be hardship, that there'll never be struggle. What it means is that in your struggle, God's still working. And in your hardship, He's still using you. And to this big burly man being burned up in your flame, God is using your testimony to raise up a young 25-year-old man to shake the, to shake the earth with his writings. In your, in, your, in your darkest moment, God's still using you. And that's the kind of worshipers we're trying to press into. That's the kind of praise we want to bring forth. That's the kind of praise we want to set before him that, that fills his nostrils uh, with a sweet aroma that says, you're wonderful. You don't have to do what I say you have to do. You're wonderful even in the darkest hour. But I know that what you said you would do, you would set all things right, you will do. So there's this fourth group, okay, this, this fourth group that I'm saying that's in the crowd. Um, I'm calling them people who have informed driven praise, whose praise is um, inspired by the revelation of who Jesus is. Matthew Henry, um, in his commentary, you know, the Puritan Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this text, he noted that this, the, the Greek really implies that the crowds that came out, were, they mostly were not the people who lived in Jerusalem, that they really seemed to be the people from the coastal land, the people from Galilee, the people from Capernaum, the people who would have seen Jesus heal the sick. Maybe they were there when Lazarus came out of the grave. Some of them heard the Sermon on the Mount. They had experienced Jesus' person. Does that make sense? Matthew Henry said most of this crowd, they were people who had encountered Jesus before this moment. They weren't hearsay believers. They were revelation. I've, I've sat down and heard him preach. I've analyzed him. I watched him heal the sick. I'm familiar with his person. Does that make sense? I think that there were some in the crowd whose praise was genuine and growing. I don't, I don't think, because even, this, even the text here says that the disciples, um, they didn't fully understand what was going on. And, and it's easy for us to look backwards. Hindsight is twenty twenty to look backwards and say, how did they not get what's going on? But the truth is, we have moments like this all the time where God's doing things in our midst and we're not, we're not quite sure what's happening, right? We're, we're trusting him. We're praising him. We're lifting our voices. But there's, there's mystery for me. I don't, I don't, I don't fully Discernment is not always having this play-by-play of what God's doing. Discernment is being able to walk through confusion and walk through hardship, still clinging to God's character. 
and finding him. Where It doesn't mean that, that, that you fully understand always what's going on. And here, I don't think, I think there are some in the crowd who were, who were still learning their revelation of Christ. Does this make sense? Because, because look, um, it's easy to assume that, that, that everyone abandoned Jesus from Palm Sunday um, to, to the crucifixion on Friday. But you get people like Joseph of Arimathea, right? The, the Pharisee who, who, who goes before the leaders and asks for Jesus' body. You get Nicodemus. What is that Pharisee doing? Like, like risking his entire political career just to wrap up Jesus' body? And you get Mary Magdalene running to the grave on Monday morning. There are some that even in the confusion, even in the darkness, they, they don't have this perfect revelation. That's quite clear. They didn't perfectly understand what was going on. But even in the mystery, they, they, they held to Jesus. We don't understand his death, but give us his body because we've got to wrap it up. We've got to give him a proper burial. They, they don't understand perfectly what's happening. But Mary's saying, but he, but he did say that he would raise on the third day. And, and we don't know, but I'm just going to run to his grave. And you remember her saying to the gardener, if, if you've taken his body, just show me where you've taken. I'll take care of him. And Jesus saying, Mary, Mary. And to her catching the, 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 the mystery of the story that's happening. I'm saying that we want to be those kind of people. I'm not promising you that I'm ever going to be able to lead you to a place where you always fully understand what God's doing. I'm not promising you that we are going to live trial free. I'm not promising you that I'm just going to skip through these halls, happy-go-lucky all the time. There are going to be days like that, praise God. But I'm saying there may come days of hardship. There may come days of trial. There may be days of confusion. But we want to be people whose worship just busts through it. Does that make sense? We don't always want to be worshiping on the other side of the Red Sea. We want to get, get before it and say, God, you're wonderful. God, you're good. Job is a book that we, we, we don't like to deal with, um, but we need to. And uh, Job said this in chapter 13. He said, though he slay me, I trust him. Though he slay me, I trust him. So I'm, I'm saying that we need to learn in God's character. We need to grow in our knowledge of God. We need to work towards revelation of who he is and how he operates and what his plans and his intentions are so that we can continue to express our praise even in moments of confusion, informed, driven praise. And so there's, there's two ways that I think we do that. And this is, I'm wrapping this up. So, so here we go. Um, Micah, if you, is Micah still in here? Micah, if you want to go ahead and uh, get ready, that would be good. There's two ways. Number one, we want to be people of the book. People of the scripture. Um, we've talked about this before. We'll continue to talk about it. The um, temptation in our day is to run to one side of the pendulum and say, we are Bible-believing people. All, we, don't need, we don't need the gifts of the Spirit because we have the Bible. We don't need healing today because we have the Bible. And then there's a temptation to pick it up and run to the other side of the pendulum and say, we don't need doctrine because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't need good teaching. We just need to pray for the sick. And I'm saying that we want to grab onto that pendulum and run somewhere back from La La Land and try to live out what this thing is teaching. Okay? And, and, and what this teaches is that we, we learn God's character through the Scripture. And so we give the Scripture a place of authority. And so what the scripture says is that God gave gifts of the spirit so that we would be edified. So I don't believe in the gifts of the spirit because I've experienced them. I believe in them because the scripture says I should. Okay, 
I don't believe in healing or in any kind of manifestation of the power because I've only experienced it. I believe it because the scripture speaks about it. And I and I force my experience under the authority of the scripture. Do You guys get where I'm going? And so what we're aimed at, the, the, the problem is, is that what the scripture teaches is that we should experience God. The scripture also teaches that Paul says, if an angel of light comes to you and preaches a gospel contrary to the gospel that I've brought to you, let that angel be accursed. Literally, let that angel be damned. Let that angel go straight to hell. So Paul says that there we, we we're after an experience with God, an ex, a relation, a relational knowledge of God. You know, that's such a Christianese thing to say in our day. God wants a relationship with you. That is what we're after, an experiential relationship with God. But we understand that um, that there, there are all kind of voices attempting to stray us, attempting to lead us astray. And so we first, we lean into the Scripture. We lean into the Word of God. And so let me say this to you, too. Don't ever let people talk you into a corner, talk you into a pocket that says the Scripture is dry and worship is is the place that you drink. And so you don't really need the scripture. I've had people say to me, I don't know why we even have preaching on Sunday mornings. We should just have the scripture uh, or we should just have worship. Um, Realize that every day when you sit before the scripture, you are experiencing God. Paul says this is the, in 2 Timothy 3.16, this is the very breath of God. You may not have chill bumps, right? You may not have this emotional high, but every time you sit before it, you are encountering the very breath of God. And so we give it preeminence. We know that we know that we know. The scriptures say that the writers of the scripture, that the prophets of old, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were perfectly preserved. And then they say to us, whenever you receive a prophetic word, you submit it to the elders. Whenever you receive a prophetic word, you test that thing. You, you, you submit it to one another and you be sure that you're hearing God because you may be missing. And so we want experience with God, but we want the right experience. When, when other voices start to speak to us and we hear horror stories 24-7, I can tell you emphatically that God has never told you that you can have an affair on your husband or wife. I can tell you that emphatically because he's told us in this thing without error that you should live in a covenantal, sacrificial relationship with your husband or wife. So we never want to just say whatever we hear goes because Paul says that there will be other things that try to speak to you. You need to learn to discern what's the voice of God. And we discern that through daily scriptural study and through sound scriptural teaching. So we want to grow in our knowledge and revelation of God through the scriptures on a daily basis. And so I'm encouraging you, when you think you've heard from God, just submit that thing to the elders. Bring that thing before other members of the church and say, hey, let's, let's talk about if this is what God's saying. Because we want to be sure that we're following the voice of the Holy Spirit. And hear me say this, there is no shame in missing. There is no shame in saying, I think God said this and having Bill or another pastor or shepherd say, I think you might be missing here. Let's pray into it more. No shame in that. That's not that's not shameful. That's called wisdom. Do You hear what I'm saying? So I'm saying wash yourself in scriptural truths every day. We're not after just any kind of encounter. We want encounters with the Holy Spirit. We want to run off all the flaky encounters. We want to have an encounter with the true God. And so through sound doctrine and through sound teaching, what we do is we allow the scriptures to build us guardrails. Okay? We build guardrails that keep us on the right path, encountering the Holy Spirit, the true God, not encountering Bobo the demon who wants to lead us astray. 
Okay, uh, we, we write Bobo the demon off with the scriptures and then we run towards encounter with God. Okay, so I think I think we should have these crazy moments where God just busts in and heal the sick. I think there should be crazy moments where you're dead asleep and God wakes you up and starts speaking to you about what he's going to do in your life and in your children's life. I think I think God should give you like in, through divine because that's what the gifts of the spirit are, right? Like through a divine word of knowledge. This is a good way for you to raise your kids. I think our lives should be filled of these kind of experiences. But we pull those experiences into the guardrails of the scriptures and we run to, towards an, an informed, right, proper encounter with the Holy Spirit in revelation and knowledge of Jesus so that when God doesn't do what we think he should do, we can still trust that God is who he says he is. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.